Well, good morning. My name is Chad Puckett. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is just a joy to, to get to jump up here on Mother's Day, uh, recognizing that, just as Jeff said, this is, a, this is a beautiful day and a hard day in a lot of ways. And so I hope that our text, though not specifically to mothers, is one that if you're here and you, you feel maybe like there are longings that that went unnamed in that, or longings that you feel unseen. I hope that as we walk through this text today, that you would recognize that Jesus sees you, that you're seen by this God, and he knows what you're carrying, and he feels for you in this, and wants to come and meet you in all of this. So uh, I'm thankful for you. If you're a visitor here, it's a real treat having you. Uh, we are thankful for our guests, and that's what you are with us, is a, is a guest in our home, so to speak. And, and we want you to be as welcome and feel like you are a part of this family. Uh, if you would, we'd just love to meet you. And so after the service, uh, just uh, come up and say something to one of us. It truly it, it does not have to be an awkward moment. Uh, we just really like meeting people. So if you would just give us a second in that. I want to pray for you, and I want to invite you to pray for me as we step in and, and just read through this text together. All right? So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for uh, opportunities to open your word. We thank you that we live in a country that we, we have the freedom to do these things. We thank you that we, we can, and yet so often we, we neglect this. And so I pray that you would help us to be people who are present this morning. Help us to lay down all of our polish, all the pretense, uh, all of the religious trappings that maybe we're used to or conditioned to to kind of jump into. And and I pray that we would simply see you and and that you would meet us today. So God, go before us. We praise you and ask for your spirit to to do what only you can do. It is work in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, uh, recently I came across a study, and, and again, we can say what we want to, studies are, uh, could, can show all sorts of things, but this one caught my attention because it showed that roughly 50% of people, uh, according to this study, roughly 50% of people believe that they are the best person they know. Okay, so get that, the, hear this. of people, according to this study, believe that they are the best person they know. They're like looking around in their life. They're looking at other people and they're like, yeah, I'm I'm." I'm about the standard bearer for the people I know in my life. That's, that's 50%. It might not surprise you. This is the one that caught my attention and why I bring it here. Uh, one, that study is a little ridiculous and crazy and, and shows us something about our culture, even if we could dig deep into that and find some things that would be a little troubling. Uh, but uh, when I, I started reading on more of this, I found out that it was put out by a self-help group. So a self-help group put out a study that found that 50% of people think that they're the best around. I I think the fact that it was commissioned by a self-help group uh, reveals something that maybe we're not as good as we think we are. Maybe that there are a lot of folks who have a high opinion outwardly of ourselves, and yet inwardly we're struggling with a lot of ways. And I think that there's something here for us as we kind of look at this passage in Mark 1, and, and what we get to is... 
maybe we would recognize in ourselves, however you would answer that study, maybe you would recognize in yourself just a little bit of being kind of selfish. Maybe you'd recognize in yourself something about kind of a, like a, a self-centeredness, and it manifests in a lot of ways. We're distracted people, and we're, we're, we're sometimes unaware people, and yet we still kind of think, well, I'm better than they are. I'm not that bad. We can even do this with ourselves. Like when we come to the Bible, we end up doing this. My guess is that you're probably, if, if you're a relatively normal person, you're a whole mix of a whole bunch of con- contradictions. You, you are at, at one point really confident. And in ways, you project a real confidence. And in other ways, like really nervous and anxious. That you're, you're both a person who can be brave and full of fear. That you're a, a person who can be uh, just like bold and just a wreck in so many ways. And so I, I really don't know how they came to this 50% of people think that they're the best person that they know. Uh, but I recognize that, that, that even however you would answer that, there are ways in which all of us kind of find ourselves right into that. You see, we can easily come to the Bible and, and read it just like we go through a yearbook. So it, my, all our kids at school are coming home with their yearbooks here real soon. And what happens generally with a yearbook is that they don't start on page one. They go all the way to the back and they find their name and they're like, which page am I on? And then they start looking at each one of those pages. And we, we can come to the Bible with that exact same thing. We come to stories that we're familiar with and we just start looking for ourselves in it. Where am I in this? Where am I in that? And we're gonna be able to do that today because there's this crazy account of unclean spirits and you're gonna be distracted here and you're gonna think like, well, can I do that? Can I cast out evil spirits or, or, or some other question around those things? And I want to encourage you as we step into this to uh, like fight against the urge to think that this story is somehow about you and recognize that it is all about Jesus. That as we read through the Bible, this is about Jesus. And we've come from this section that Jeff walked us through over the last two weeks. Again, we're still in chapter one, but we've come from this section which is making enormous claims. And and Jeff walked us through Old Testament passages and walked us through uh, looking at where this comes from, this this claim of who God is. We've come from it, and, and now we just get to see these kind of three accounts of where Jesus shows up and everything changes. It's the validation of those huge claims that we start to get played out in these stories. And and those those accounts, those stories may be familiar to you. My hope is that as we take this long walk through Mark, that we continue to just look at this Jesus and say, oh, you're more than I ever gave you credit. And maybe if we were people who just came to the text looking for ourselves in it, that we would see Jesus afresh with fresh eyes and we'd see what he's doing. And so I want you just to to see how Jesus shows up in this story and and then it, it, it doesn't even demand it. It's like the inevitable action that comes from it is a response. 
There's just no way around it. It demands a response. And so look with me here at verses 14 and 15. We're in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And I just want to start here because this is something of a blueprint for how the rest of this passage is going to play out. So read it with me. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's what we're going to see as we walk through this. So you, can, you can see these things. It's really simple. This is really simple and straightforward. What we're reading is not complicated. It's not alluding. It's actually really straightforward. Here is a statement that is made. Here's something that is happening. We get that. And then what you read in this is that it's packed full of details. There are details to to unpack. It is direct and it calls for a response. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So as we, we go through that, we want to see uh, this with fresh eyes, and we want to see the threads that are, that are, are, are apparent in, in uh, running through all of this scripture. We want to see these threads and, and how they all tie together into this big, rich, beautiful tapestry of who Jesus is, who this king is that we're promised, and who we're told about, and we want to see what, what that calls in us. And so... What we get from this text, what we see from the whole of this book, is that this promised one, the promised one from all the way back in the Old Testament, this promised one has come. He is the king, and he changes everything. He changes everything. And so the very next verse jumps into this. I'm not trying to, uh, there's no gotcha here. We're going to simply walk through this text. We're going to walk through the text and, and see what's happening. And my hope is that for, for all of us, myself included, is that we would see how these people experience Jesus and that we would experience Jesus for ourselves. That we would experience this, this Jesus who has come, this Jesus who reigns, And this Jesus who demands a response. Let's see that. Mark chapter 1 verse 16 gives us this kind of first account that we see. And notice the threads that run through this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Okay, so again, we're we're simply reading scripture and kind of seeing the threads. We're looking past ourselves in this. We're not trying to say, hey, could I be a fisherman? Am I going to be a fisherman, a fisher of men? Would he do that in my life? Those are all good questions. But like, let's see the threads that are running through this and, and how it points us right back to Jesus. Notice the details. The details. We, we, we get the details of the, these guys are fishermen. We get the details of, uh, of Jesus is passing along right here in the Sea of Galilee. And you get this kind of scene set that is happening right here. You get this. And then you have something that becomes really important for us. And, and it becomes a recurring theme. Jesus sees them. He sees them. 
It's, it's Jesus initiating everything that will come after this. It's Jesus who takes the action. It's Jesus who actually goes to them in this. It's, it's, he sees them. He initiates this. He takes all of it, and then he calls them. There's a calling right here in this. He, Jesus said to them, verse 17, follow me. Follow me. And then there's a response. What do they do? We, we, you may be familiar with this passage, but they literally drop their nets. They leave their livelihood, and they go after Jesus. Parenthetically saying, he's worth all of it. He's worth all of it. So, I mean, you see this text, and you, you get this, and that kind of, those threads run through this. There are details. There's, there, there's this seeing, Jesus seeing what's going on. There is him taking the initiative, this, this calling, and then this response that goes through all of these accounts. Again, verse 19 through 20. Have, and going on a little further, a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Okay, so hopefully what we're, what we're doing is a little bit of Bible study as we walk through this, and we're, we're kind of seeing, uh, recognizing these themes that are, are taking place in it, the, the details that are happening right here. He, he, they're, they're in there mending their nets. There's, there's like actual real life things happening here in this. Jesus comes along. He sees them. He is initiating every bit of interaction here. He is initiating it. These guys are not like uh, probably not the top of the heap. They're not the Mensa students of their day. They're not, they're not the ones who uh, are, are the first pick uh, of this. These, these are the guys who uh, aren't in the training schools. They're out on the boat. And Jesus actually sees them. They're not overlooked to Jesus. He sees them. He initiates everything with them. And then he calls them. And we wonder to ourselves, like, what? I, I can't believe they just dropped everything off of this. No, they're... Maybe for the first time, they really felt seen. And right here in this text, there's that response. They left. It even gives us even more detail. It wasn't just that they dropped their nets. They left Zebedee. They left their father. And you have to think, as real human beings, there was the look between them, right? The look. It's like... It, maybe nothing was even said, but the look to dad, it was like, hey, we got to go. This is worth everything. And then you get the next account. It goes right through this, into this. Uh, verse 21, we go right here. Uh, and they went into Capernaum. Okay, so it, it switches from, and he did this, and he was walking along. It, it, the guys are with him in this, and, and they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. 
And they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. There's all sorts of things that we could unpack here around authority and teaching in the the synagogue and the Jewish system and and what that means and what that looks like. Uh, But I want to just kind of keep us focused on these threads that are coming in here. You have, even though the account is different, he's not calling people to follow him right here in this direct directly. He, he steps in and he starts the teaching. You have some of those same threads. Jesus initiating. Though it doesn't say it, you could, you could clearly read into this. Jesus saw this synagogue and these people. He went in and he starts to teach them. Jesus taking the initiative and he starts to teach them. And then he doesn't just teach them some uh, nice little story. He actually teaches as one with authority in this. You have to kind of think here, just kind of put yourself in the seats of those people in Capernaum and recognize that, uh, again, let's play off of our survey, that maybe 50% of the people in the synagogue at Capernaum were looking around and thinking, I'm kind of the best one here. That there are 50% in there like, I'm, I'm something of a big deal around here. And if people would just recognize that and recognize that I'm a big shot in this thing. Like there are people here who were like, who is this dude? And how does he just get to step up here and say these things? Who is this one? And then they name it. They're like, this guy is teaching as one with authority. You know the questions were flying. You know that they were like, what is, what is going on? How does this guy get up there and, and do this? And yet there was also a recognition. He's teaching as one as authority, not as the scribes do. Something is different about this guy. We just need to kind of name it, right? We just need to name it because this word comes up in this text that is troublesome. And it's troublesome because we live in a day in which we bristle at this word. We don't like it. We run from it in all sorts of ways. But this word authority is one that maybe instantly gets us sideways. And we could read it clinically. We could kind of sit here and just go, oh, he was teaching us one as authority. But as soon as we bring it into real life, we're like, I'm not sure. I I like that someone has authority. All sorts of places in this. We, we see it all the time. We're, we're even in the midst of a culture that questions whether there's any authority at all. That there's any authority that, that could speak into my life in, in any way. We live in this like uh, we, me kind of culture of, of like my ideas are right. And who are you or anyone to tell me that my ideas are wrong? We live in a culture which basically tells you that you are the sole authority for your life. And I want you to see really clearly that scripture makes an altogether different claim. An altogether different claim. We even have invented words for this. Like, I think we have it on our screen and I'm going to dare pronounce it. Uh, But here's the word. Invented for this very reason, octoritisophobia. I think I nailed it. I think I nailed it. Octoritisophobia, which is actually a clinical term for fear of authority. 
And now I went on way too deep of a deep dive into this. I, I, I just went down the rabbit trail about uh, authority and fear of all this stuff. There's even uh, people who have come to the point who have said your uh, aversion, your rebelling against authority has to do with trauma you experienced in a past life. Yeah, I, I hope you hear that. Trauma, not just in this life, but in a past life. Man, we're inventing new ways to get around authority in our life. We're inventing ways to dismiss those who would speak with authority into our life. And yet scripture, and even right here, brings us to this point which says there is a king who has come and he reigns. And he has authority over your life and my life. And there's no way for us to get around that. We live in a world in which up has become down and right has become wrong, where anybody speaking as one with authority is slapped down and the mob comes after them. It doesn't matter which side of the issue you're on. Like it, that is kind of the world that we're living in. I came across one author who put it this way, and she says, remember, you are the only person who thinks in your mind. And you are the power and the authority in your world. I want to, as, as lovingly and forcefully as I can, tell you that that is garbage. You are not the only power and authority in your world. And thinking like this, this your truth, my truth, your authority, my authority, like, is the poison of our day. But the countercultural claim of the Bible is that there is an ultimate authority, that there is one who reigns. And what we see throughout this text is that it is only man that argues against that. You see, the, the defiance of established authority, the, like the, the rebellion against the established authority may be the kind of defining moment of the last 10, 20 years in our culture. The fact that all uh, authority has been kind of thrown out the window, it, it may be the defining moment, and we see it all over the place, from riots in the street uh, and to the invasion of a capital. We see it uh, from city councils being just overrun with people to even a school board here in our own city right here this week where people are just shouting like crazy. And again, I'm not weighing in on one side or the other. I'm simply saying that it is symptom of our day. It's a symptom of our day. And we're not just talking about somewhere else or, or some national like cable news thing. We're talking about right here uh, on the cover of the Yukon Progress in, in this place today. We're talking about us. We're not talking about someone at a school board meeting. We're talking about us and how we are affected about, by all these things. And, and yet let's acknowledge too that authority has been misused and authority has been misplaced, and authority can be faked in so many ways. It, it, it can be faked. It's the reason why impersonating a police officer is a crime. Because someone is faking authority and faking it and trying to deceive other people. And we've seen it in all walks of life. But that doesn't give us the authority 
to just dismiss it and run away. You see, the, the claim of Scripture is that Jesus has come and he is better, that he has real authority and everything else reacts to Jesus. And right here in our passage, these people recognized that something was different and that one with authority has come. One with authority has come. We'll pick it up in verse 23. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Right there, in that moment, that spirit came out of him. Incredible. You see all the same things. Uh, there's a recognition right here in this, but there's uh, there the details There's a calling out. But, but I find it so fascinating that right here in it, the, the unclean spirit actually recognizes who Jesus is. The unclean spirit does not argue with his authority. The unclean spirit doesn't even have any say in it. It simply responds. There's a rebuke. There's a response. And most certainly there is this authority. Again, fight, fight the distraction uh, of the, the demons or the exorcism and, and whether or not you can do that. Fight all that distraction and just see the threads in this. There is one who has come and everything reacts to that. Jesus shows up and sets people free. The demon has no authority. The demons don't even argue it. There, there's nothing around that. And as we, as we walk through Mark, we're going to see this again and again. Uh, that nature does not argue with Jesus' authority. The winds and the wave don't argue with Jesus' authority. Disease has no sway over Jesus' authority. Uh, nothing in creation has authority over Jesus. The only thing that argues with Jesus, is man. It's us who bristle at this, who try to argue it. And then our passage closes with these words. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. You have these last two verses, which are, are basically give you a summary of what we've just read. A summary, and what comes out of that is that the people 
we're amazed. We're amazed. At what? At this one who commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. This one who comes in authority. And so as we, as we read this, as we think about it, what we want to do is come along in the exact same way and, and come amazed to Jesus and yielding to his authority. We want to have the, the same experience and, and recognize that. We want to, to know these things. We want to know Jesus right here that he sees us. And, and I can tell you from scripture that Jesus does. Just like we see in these accounts that Jesus sees you right now. Just like we've seen in the text, this same Jesus uh, right there on the throne, he sees you. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're carrying. He knows your pain. He knows your circumstances. He knows that things that you wouldn't even want to name, that you carry shame around. He sees you. He sees your longings and your loss. The sum testimony of the four Gospels of of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that when Jesus sees our fallenness, when Jesus sees our sin, he doesn't retreat back from it. He actually runs to these people. And maybe you've experienced religion in which you felt like you had to cover up and hide your guilt or you, you felt like you, you had to clean up before you came to Jesus. And what I want you to see from the accounts that we have today and from the whole of Scripture is that Jesus sees you right where you're at. And he, that he comes, he initiates, and he runs to you. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. And he is that initiating God. He's that right now, not just in Capernaum, not just on the Sea of Galilee. He is that initiating God right here. Jesus didn't die uh, for once we became strong. He didn't die for people once they cleaned up their act. He didn't uh, go to the cross uh, once you overcame all of your sin. He actually went to the cross to pay for all. He initiates it. God and his son initiates your grace, the love that comes after us. And then on top of that, it isn't just that he sees you where you're at. It isn't just that he is initiating. He is calling you and me to follow him in the everyday spaces of our life. He's calling us to be his disciples and to follow after him, to stop pretending, to stop polishing up ourselves, to stop just kind of sitting up straight when we're around church stuff, uh, to actually be a disciple following after Jesus in the full 168 hours of our week. He didn't come just to make slight alterations to our schedule or to our lifestyle. He didn't come to uh, do any of those things. He came to people and said, follow after me. And what we see here is that it changed everything. They dropped their nets. They left their father. It changes everything. And what we also see that I think is true for us today is that it demands a response. 
There's a response for each one of us. It isn't just like uh, that we leave and have another happy Sunday. It isn't just that we stand up and say, well, that guy did an okay job or he didn't do an okay job. That's not the response. The response isn't evaluation. The response is, is Jesus king? And how is my life responding to that? You see, no one... No one teaches kids, no one taught my kids, and no one taught your kids how to make excuses for their screw-ups. We just kind of know how to do that. And it's easy for me to talk about my kids while neglecting to talk about myself. No one taught my kids how to do it, uh, and no one taught me how to. And even now, at 46 years old, I can still make all sorts of excuses for, uh, let's not just say screw-ups, for my sin. And yet Jesus is calling us to lay down all of our polish, to lay down all of our excuses, to lay down all of the the ways that we would explain those things away and to simply say, you are king and I need you. And so I, I just want to leave you with this. I want you to see those threads, not just in our text, but in your story. Not just in the, the, the seaside or the synagogue, but, but right here in Yukon with us. I want you to see that those threads are true here as well. That God sees you exactly where you're at. That he is coming to you. He's not waiting for you to get your act together. He's coming to you, and he's coming to you calling you. And maybe the, the, the wrestling inside you is like, oh, I'm not good enough, or he couldn't possibly love me. If, if Jesus just knew this, uh, friends, he knows. He knows. And he simply says, respond. Respond.